Welcome to Marketplace Jungle, where we discuss the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Except today. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to have this conversation with Stefan Haney. In his 16 years at Amazon, Stefan was responsible for the design and development of many of the tools used by Amazon sellers today, and is the man to thank for many of these tools, which were previously accessible only to brands on the 1P model, becoming accessible to all brands. Since leaving Amazon, Stefan has worked with numerous other marketplaces, helping them to scale, and is also co-founder at Foundry, an aggregator of Amazon brands. In this episode, you can expect to learn what it's like to get the infamous question mark email from Jeff Bezos, why Amazon Seller Central ticks the way it does, and spoiler alert, they didn't actually set out to annoy sellers, how Amazon benchmarks seller tools provided by other marketplaces, how you can use Amazon as a tool to succeed when selling on other marketplaces, and how Stefan thinks Amazon will react to marketplace listings created with ChatGPT. Stefan, thank you so much for joining for this episode of Marketplace Jungle. Obviously, we do try and focus on marketplaces beyond the world of Amazon on this show, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to the godfather of Seller Central. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to come on and talk to us and to share your story. I'd love to start off with a little introduction. Perhaps you can tell us about yourself, how you got started at Amazon and how you got into e-commerce in general. And then we can see where the conversation takes us. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Uh, you know, I, maybe I got started in e-commerce when I was 12 years old. My mom dropped me off at, at a businessman's house and said, hey, he needs a job. Uh, and then I started, you know, <laughs> ordering product and taking over the ordering, taking over the display in a physical store. But I learned more at Village Bike Shops about how customers buy uh, and and how to, how to run e-commerce than I probably did in my... Uh, university degree, you know, uh, when you're working in a small business, you see everything, uh, and that gave me a lot of empathy. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of sellers on Amazon and beyond. Um, you know, the U.S. tax definition of a small business is under 50 million uh, wow. in revenue, which mm-hmm. means a lot of e-commerce businesses are small businesses, right? And um, you know, I would say my start in e-commerce goes all the way back to my start in small business. Uh, but um, you know, I came to Amazon uh, in. Uh, uh, 2003, and Amazon, you know, you got to go back in time, even though it's only 20 years ago. That's pre-iPhone, so that's, right? That's, 2003. Uh, that's prehistoric in e-commerce days. <laughs> I do have some gray hair, so, uh, you know, the uh, it's pre-iPhone. You know, we were barely putting books in boxes. Pre-FBA, uh, that's pre-Kindle, that's pre-AWS, right? It was just a, couple, a few hundred, actually a couple thousand employees, uh, in the, the south side of Seattle, in the International District, um, you know, and we were, you know, making stuff happen. 2003 is when Amazon just started getting beyond uh, media. And so my first role was uh, work on uh, uh, inventory ordering automation for uh, orders uh, for inventory of Amazon. So building software that expanded Amazon's automated inventory ordering from, you know, books and DVDs to drills and diapers and diamonds. Uh, and doing it without hiring a lot of people. And the important part there is you learn how to think about how do I make software that people, that, like cruise controls, right, uh, for a car. How do I build software in a way that recognizes data conditions where the users set the data conditions and then work on other things? Because a lot of software works the other way, right? So I now spend a lot of time on Amazon and Seller Central. I spend a lot of time on, on software that people try to sell to Shopify and Amazon sellers, to uh, European sellers. And uh, there's still the other way where the software is generating tasks for people to do instead of doing tasks that people direct it at. And that's really the inverse of each other. So that was kind of our early thinking. My next role at Amazon was to take over uh, seller tools, all the tools that sellers use to run their business from Seller Central to API launching. We launched API uh, back in the day, MWS first, and then the more recent one, uh, as well as uh, the mobile app. So that was, and that was our mindset. Is how, do we, how do we give sellers an informed, data-driven tool set but you can see Seller Central is like a house that got built over time. And depending on which room you're looking at, uh, you're like, wow, that doesn't do anything what he says. Uh, whereas other of them, you know, are more automated. So. so 
So what came first, the flat file or Seller Central? Jeez, I don't know, man. Uh, I know in 2000, so I came to Marketplace team in 2009. Okay. And, uh, the, you know, the first 28 of my first 30 days, um, I got these emails with the, from Jeff Bezos. And, like, the first one, I'm like, wow, that's cool. I got an email from Jeff Bezos with a question mark. Oh, no. I didn't know what that meant at the time. What it means is call your wife and say, I don't know when I'm coming home because uh, I have 24 hours to answer this email about why did this happen. Uh, and, and the reason why what was happening at the time is Seller Central was pretty fragile software uh, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it was falling below Amazon's operation standards. And so what I had to answer. And at the time, remember Seller Central has a cool new navigation now, but it had these tabs. There's like four tabs. That was it in 2009. And if you go back to 2009, the, the early functionality was like uh, very basic. Um, you as a seller, you would communicate directly with buyers through your own email. I know a lot of sellers might want that now. There's no such thing as buyer-seller messaging. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was a little wild west. Uh, and there was definitely policy violations going on. Um, and, and even returns. It's like you'd go to Amazon as a customer. You'd want to return something. It's like, oh, we're sorry. You bought that from 3P. Please email the seller. Yeah. <laughs> right? There was no process. So really that first... 2009, 2010, 2000, even early 11, um, all we were doing in Seller Central was trying to add uh, basic operational functionality uh, to try to drive completeness. So was it expected at the time when Seller Central was in this early stage that sellers would also use it to manage product data? Or was it originally thought that it would be more for managing, as you said, customer emails, but maybe also for like updating inventory and, and uh, price information? Was it expected that people would be wanting to manage, you know, hundreds of attributes and, and descriptions and things like A plus content? Well, first off, uh, you couldn't manage A plus content True. unless you were really special and gotten an exception. Yeah. So one of the, the things, and so uh, this Godfather Seller Central title, we did so much to Seller Central from 2009 to 2016, and, and it, a lot of it ran through my team. But um, my team was responsible for the core platform as well as um, design standards and uh, some of the primary services, uh, but there's really dozens of teams that own their individual function, right? There's an FBA, multiple FBA tech teams at the time, and they would own the FBA reports or the FBA shipment workflow. Um, and they'd work with my team to try to drive a, as much as we could, a common experience, but we'd make this trade off of, do we get the functionality out fast or do we make it look and feel really integrated? And we tended to err toward fast, which means as you go through Seller Central, like, I think at one point um, my designers and I were crying in the corner and beating our heads against the wall because there was 19 different versions of table layouts uh, in Seller Central. And you go from one screen to the next and the table of data would look very different. But your question was, you know, what was the expectation? You know, in the early days, 2009, 2010, right, you're talking about a million, there are already nearly a million sellers. And we learned there's volume sellers, and and I don't think, uh, back to the other part of the question, I don't think anybody wants to manage hundreds of attributes. Mm. Uh, but there are volume sellers who are, we saw a pretty distributed uh, couple dozen products for sale, or hundreds of products for sale. And clearly the effort to, to do hundreds of products for sale through Seller Central was not expected. We would expect people were using flat files. We went through a and flat files as a tool actually have a lot of their own iterations. There we'd run into problems. Some of these small business owners didn't have Excel yeah. or had such an old version of Excel. We're like, do we just use CSV? <laughs> do we send them? A, is it easier for us just to send them an updated copy of Excel on us? Um, and and do we have the right instructions or what are the errors? You know, because a lot of times we're thinking about user error. Um, and I know people may want to think, man, they made Seller Central so complicated, or they made these flat files so complicated. Well, really, it's a complicated process. And the way we would think about it is if there are user errors, you know, how do we make the tool just so much more intuitive and easy to use? It's going to be a complicated tool. Seller Central, as it's evolved now, is, you know, like a, you know, a cockpit uh, for an aircraft with lots of dials and gauges. Um, you know, or, you know, something with, with just lots of blinking lights to get your attention. But, 
there are a lot of pieces to running an Amazon business, and so it, and it's all there. But yeah, at the time, we thought about volume and non-volume sellers. We did come to learn later, so I'm going to add on to that story. There was this internal perception that volume sellers didn't use Seller Central. Seller Central didn't matter. Um, and as we prioritize resources, it's like, well, big sellers use flat files and, and API, so we shouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but it's Amazon, and so we always look at the data. And we start out, it's like, well, you believe that. What does the data say? Right? What data do we have to confirm that belief? We actually found something different. The more business, what we found is the more business a seller does with Amazon, uh, the more they use all the tools, but they use them for different things. So even a large seller would still come to Amazon, even for listings or for price updates. And uh, it's kind of intuitive once you hear it out loud, but they would look at their top sellers and they would hand manage the price and inventory on their top sellers. And then they would let flat files take care of everything else. But is that cool? So as I've worked with other marketplaces now, I'm finding the same kind of dynamics, um, you know, in Romania or in, in uh, other countries in Eastern Europe. You know, I'm seeing the same things. Is that causal? Do, do the sellers that, do these volume sellers or did the volume sellers that you're referring to there, did they perform so well because they were using those tools or were they using those tools because they were performing well and Amazon was becoming a bigger part of their business and they wanted to look for more opportunities? Did you have any data on that or... Well, um, yes. So also in my you know, responsibilities over time was to look at the total population of Amazon. Um, and you know, as you, if you're gaining you know, hundreds of sellers per month, right, which ones are likely to become the next million dollar or the next multi-million dollar seller? Right? Can you identify? Or which ones are struggling on the platform? So we would look and, and see what's the growth rate of the seller and what do sellers that uh, grow faster, what do they do, hmm. right? And what we would see is sellers who hit a certain, you can't just lit, you can't put your toe in the water. You don't swim, you're not actually swimming when you put your toe in the water. So you needed to get to a certain volume of products. We would find that um, search and Amazon sales and seller ratings work well when you have, you know, and we had different numbers by country, but you needed to have, um, you know, dozens of listings active mm. and you need to have some FBA and you needed to try some ads and you probably wanted to do global selling uh, and sellers who did that uh, uh, had a faster acceleration on the marketplace and sellers, you know, you talk about causal, you know, they're uh, what I don't think we ever proved this, but you know, when I looked at some seller systems, seller systems were often some of them were very sophisticated and others were less mature. They were a little more operational. So a seller's only updating their flat file every other day. You know, well, you know, if I can go to Seller Central and hand manage my top sellers, I can do that every hour. Mm -hmm. I can do that every minute. Right. And so we'd find, you know, maybe there's a correlation or a causation, but you know, good sellers pay attention to, you know, what's the market for their top top products driving their sales. So that's, that, that leads um, nicely into a question that I had from one of our customers actually, uh, who asked, why is it that when I'm creating products on Amazon via flat file versus in Seller Central with manual creation, why do different values, why, why are the things which are marked as required field in one accepted or not accepted in the other? And why are some valid values maybe things which are given in the template in the flat file is, you know, here you're allowed to call it dark blue instead of marine blue or the other way around. Why is then the other value accepted in the other upload or creation method? Do you know what I mean? Is There's a lot of discrepancy there. And I'm not complaining because it's part of what we built our entire business around. But is there a reason? Is there is there some underlying logic behind why that's the case? Is it intentional or was it, some, was it an accident? Yeah, so... Uh, it's not in, it's not intentional, uh, but I know where it comes from. Okay. So, uh, you know, one of the things I just said. So, you know, as you try to understand, like, how did Seller Central get this way, right? Why is it the way it is, right? It doesn't feel cohesive. It's just got a couple rough edges, you know, just at least a couple, <laughs> um, or it's just different. Why is it different, right? One of the answers is uh, era. When was it made, mm -hmm. right? And so, trying to understand. 
you know, software, the buyer-seller messaging software that came out in 2010, 2011, they probably didn't anticipate all the use cases that have emerged. And maybe they're behind. Maybe they don't have as big a team as when they launched. Maybe they're working on special cases for some other part of the world that you don't live in uh, because they're focused on India right now or something else in their priorities of their roadmap. So, uh, you know, one of the answers is, you know, what's the era that this functionality was released. Second answer is, I might have slipped that in just a couple minutes ago, different teams own different functionality. And so it's not surprising. Sometimes the FBA inventory report has different fields uh, and you use those fields even for your own MFN mm -hmm. because you get more visibility um, or vice versa. Well, that's because different teams, uh, one, it's a different era. So they release that functionality in different years and uh, they also released, different teams owned it. So they made a decision a different way. That's what I suspect between listing, uh, flat file listing and, and uh, the, the UI listing uh, is in some cases, the same team owns the functionality. So, you know, a couple years ago, the, the manage orders team owned the API, the mobile app functionality, the seller central UI and the flat file, mm -hmm. right? Manage orders owned all four surfaces we'll call them but listings um, has been a little more fragmented so well it just you know one got it done before the other right uh, different departments uh, had different schedules and they're out of sync so I'm, I'm curious because obviously the the listing data is arguably one of the most important pieces of information that a seller can provide to amazon whether they're using the flat file or manual creation uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope I'm not, because again, we've built our entire business around this, but the more information you feed to the machine in this case, the more attributes you fill in with correct data, generally speaking, the better you're going to perform as a seller on Amazon. Obviously, there's a hundred other variables that come in there, but Amazon wants sellers to provide as much data about these products so that the algorithm knows which of those products to show to which buyers. Would you not yes. think that it makes more sense for there to have been more um, investment or more um, onus to be put onto the actual creation of these listing data rather than endless reports, which never really quite show what a seller wants to have, or maybe you've got to download 50 different reports to get the same, you know, to get a couple of pieces of information. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? Yeah. You're just like, why, why is this so difficult? Why can't Amazon just, you know, so simple? Why can't uh, the emphasis is on the wrong part there? Why can't Amazon manage this? Sure, right. Uh, it's interesting. Simple things are hard at scale, right? Uh, you know, it's it's very easy. Uh, you know, it's computer science. You know, computer science challenge, right? It's very easy to um, uh, update a price. It's very easy to update a price on multiple servers. But if you want that price to be updated on multiple servers at the same time, mm -hmm. right? and you have thousands of servers, right? It's not gonna happen instantaneously, yeah. right? So you know, if you think about all the different places you make some listing changes or all the different pieces, um, when Amazon's looking at the problem, Amazon's looking at millions or multiple millions. You know, I don't think I can say how many millions, uh, maybe billions, right? Of You think about how much product data Amazon has, has pulled in over time and you know, as late as 2017, 2018, right? Amazon started to move toward, in certain categories, normalized values. Do you know how many shoe sizes sellers had entered, right? I mean, of all the humans in the world, how many shoe sizes are there, right? A few hundred, you know? Turns out, you know, there's actually a couple thousand normalized values for shoe sizes and sellers had put in you know, with capital letters and low caps and, you know, some creative, you know, numbers that were spelled out versus numbers, you know, whatever. Um, sellers had put in literally hundreds of thousands of discrete values, right? So uh, the amount of every attribute creates some input. Um, and where do you focus first? Uh, were two of the pro things that become hard at scale. You know, at one point, I don't remember flat files, there was like, what, what's the fur trim on these books? Right, because uh, it was like the superset of all attributes. Because yeah, that is that required. So, you know, I think yes, it's in Amazon's benefit. And I think as a seller, you have to remember, 
you know, you have to prioritize the hole that's going to sink you uh, for running the business. There's going to be holes everywhere, so you're going to get a little bit of water in the boat. Uh, waves going to come over the side, but what's going to sink you? And Amazon is focused on what drives customer impact first, because uh, that's just how Amazon thinks. Focuses on the customer um, and what's the customer impact, and then they start to get to efficiency. And, and Amazon's okay to have inefficiencies for a while, or they're okay to let a little bit of water in the boat, and they'll get to it eventually. Uh, so, you know, when I think about listings as a seller, remember those attributes do work. And the work that uh, the attributes do, uh, certainly the more attributes fill in, not only get built into the search index, they also get built into search filters, right? Mm -hmm. People do use the filters on the side. Yeah. Right? Uh, the display words you use, you know, what shows up, uh, you know, underneath the, the price, it has some key value pairs above the bullets, right? Um, you have to have those completed in order for those to show up. So, you know, prioritizing the words and then, you know, picking the ones that are most likely um, uh, to be used by Amazon consistently and to be normalized values, super valuable to do. And I'd say that's true because that's working from the customer backwards. So no matter what marketplace you're on, there's a few unique customer experiences, but customers shop pretty similarly uh, around the world. Um, has been my experience backed up by user research. Yeah, and obviously these a lot of these attributes are, are dependent on different values. So, you know, you might be able to call, sometimes you get extreme examples where, you know, men's shoes you can call gray, but women's shoes you can call silver for whatever reason. And, you know, as you said, these, these values, they change over time. So it's always valuable for a seller to be able to stay up to date with, with that information. But I'm curious, why it is because obviously with Amazon most of the valid values that you can apply they're dependent on the feed product type and yet you see that the browse node gets more hype and you rarely see people talking about the, the product type and I, I think it's maybe because it's a bit less sexy like socks hosiery isn't a very sexy title um, or apparel gloves but it, I personally think there's a lot more value to be put on the feed product type and making sure that that's correct than the browse node Especially because Amazon's, I think, less likely to move your feed product type, whereas they're very likely to move your category. You know, we're we're way under the hood, way deep into the uh, the mechanics of things right so now. So are all we're the That's Product okay. types and browse nodes, and uh, you know, I'm I'm glad to play with you there. Uh, let's just make sure our listeners want to know, uh, Jesse. You know, man, what's a browse node? What's a product type? Uh, but to go back, like, you just. To unwind that a little bit, like why do product types and browse nodes matter, right? And so um, sometimes, like anytime you're building the house, you live with the architecture that was defined, you know, years ago, um, and it, it gets expensive. Um, one of the things I got to do at Seller Central uh, was eliminate, especially as brands started to come, third-party sellers started to do more brands. You know, the question was like, does the customer really care whether it's a vendor or an FBA seller that's brand registered? Do they really care? Um, for a gold box promotion at the time or a deal of the day, right? Why do vendors get to have A plus, but those brand registered third party sellers and FBA don't, right? Uh, so for a couple of years, I was just on a tear, like rip down this wall, right? You know, why do, why do we need this? Does the customer care? Um, now that took, created a couple things. One is uh, um, the promotions workflow. Uh, my team helped build and, and I helped architect the promotions workflow. Um, we're like, you know, it's the same thing, right? Um, we're going to make recommended suggested promotions based on you know, what we know about what customers buy, what we know about price elasticity, and we can build the same workflow agnostic to vendor or seller. Mm -hmm. um, let's do that from the beginning. Some stuff, there hadn't intended to be a wall. A plus content just it had been built for vendors first. And so people, you know, maybe we're rationalizing or maybe we're just like, yeah, we never got around to opening it up, but it's going to be expensive to do. Is it worth it? And then, you know, listing for a long time, it was actually separate listing processing, you know, flat file from a vendor versus flat file from a third party seller inside of Amazon was different software just because of different eras. It had been built at different times um, and it was going to be really expensive to, to make one system or to make parity in both systems. But then there came a point where it's like, well, the natural life cycle of the software came up. Let's re-architect, mm -hmm. right? And let's let's put that together. 
So that answer, sometimes it's eras, sometimes it's cost and prioritization. You know, that's what drives some of these differences. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of like why this happened. But, um, you know, as a seller, if you're trying to navigate browse node or product type, you know, don't, game, don't try to game the system. Understand the system, don't try to game the system. Um, you know, if you find something that's working and, and it's just the way the system works, great, but understand if it's weird or unusual or you feel sneaky, Amazon will probably detect that over time. So, but then understand how each one of those works, right? Browse nodes are great. You know, Amazon is not one big river. Amazon is like a bunch of tributaries, right? You know, customers come to shop segments of Amazon, they shop each period. So different browse nodes may have different traffic volume, right? And if you're trying to optimize for how many eyeballs do I get and how much do I get organically versus how much do I actually have to pay for ads for? Yeah, it's to your benefit to understand browse nodes optimization. If you're trying to understand like, hey, what are all the different search relevance and search uh, attributes that I can possibly give to get organic keyword matches? Yes, be complete in your product type mm -hmm. and and uh, make sure you're you know accurately reflected there uh, is is key. But understand, Amazon is going to keep trying to clean up and curate those products. It's funny because so, obviously uh, uh, the example that comes to mind there is t-shirts because t-shirts are obviously infamously hard to sell on Amazon you know, or to to rank for. But the last time I looked, I think there were about 180 browse nodes for t-shirts and if you're trying to sell just a plain blue men's t-shirt it's going to be difficult but if you're selling a t-shirt for badminton it's probably less competition and that browse node probably performs a lot better for your specific product niche than trying to dump it into the general t-shirts category um, but it sounds if i understood your description there uh, it sounds like there's a lot of amazon businesses and brands out there that aren't part of the vendor program that have you to thank for all of the options that they now have, um, whether it's A-plus content or different uh, marketing options to get their products out there in front of their consumers. It was my task to carry the ball and, uh, you know, lots of shoulders, a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to, to share the thanks because really customers win. So that's true. the good thing. True, true. But we talk about just just riff on that a second, Jesse. The um, you know, we both have these wonderful Patagonia jumpers. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, is that a is that a sports and outdoors product or is that a clothing product? Right. Uh, and, and so Amazon was living with a, uh, a catalog system that was originally maybe was originally architected for books. Uh, and if you think of these different products, books have hard identifiers. You know, they, there's a Library of Congress number from the U.S. or an ISBN, or there's a hard identifier, um, and pretty pretty hard attributes with a limited set, a limited set of very objective attributes. It's either hardback or paperback. It's not really a medium back, right? Um, then you move into electronics, which is Amazon's next thing, right? And still hard identifiers. But now you start to get some ace and churn, right? Like once the book is published, that's going to be out there for years. And the next Samsung TV, like that may last eight months. That may last, you know, and there's all these variants, right? Uh, the, the number of variants increase. Then you move into clothing and now subjectivity, like which flavor of green is that? Mm -hmm. Like I am an eight color box. My wife is an 800 color box. You know, she's like, can you give me that turquoise thing? I'm like, is that turquoise? I think it's blue. Uh, <laughs> You know, and, and now is a listing problem, but the original foundation had been placed with this very hard identifier with ASINs that last a long time. So you brought up t-shirts. Uh, you know, one of the examples there was um, we had Cafe Press as a seller. Uh, and in theory, you know, that should have been like maybe 50 ASINs, small, medium, large, extra large, men's, women's. And the design is not, shouldn't have ever been an ASIN. Right. But the way that Amazon was structured at the time, each design and size combination is a parent child ASIN. Right. And then you each design size color, you know, so all of a sudden like one seller was 
hundreds of thousands of basins. <laughs> what a mess, right? Because of the foundation architecturally that we had started out with. Now we unwound that and, and you know made some, some changes able to do that. But the initial setup, like that's how the platform was built, right? And, and uh, so, you know, that's some of the challenges as a seller. I just want to make my stuff for sale. I want to get a lot of eyeballs and I want to optimize the price of getting those eyeballs, right? Um, so it's been interesting to see other marketplaces, you know, have different catalog structures and also technology has evolved, right? So hard database queries versus, you know, more tag based or more graph based data structures. Um, you know, it's interesting to see how other marketplaces are starting to build. So obviously the focus of this podcast is other marketplaces. There's, a, there's enough resources out there for someone that wants to learn mm -hmm. how Amazon ticks and, and the goal here is to focus a little bit on marketplaces beyond Amazon. Um, in your experience, I know you work, since, since you finished working with Amazon, you've worked with other marketplaces. You mentioned Romania. Um, what are some of the marketplaces that you've seen that from your perspective are ones which are structurally well set up, that are ready to scale, that you think will be the ones that are worth selling on for an Amazon seller looking to expand onto their next channel. And I appreciate you're based in the US, so Walmart's the obvious answer. I'll accept it, but I'll ask for some more beyond that. Um, yeah, what's what, what's on the radar? Yeah, so first off, you know, part of my responsibilities at Amazon as, as seller tools was to benchmark other tools, right? Amazon never gets worried about competitors uh, as a we have to go beat them. But they always appreciate competitors to learn from is what are competitors doing that customers or sellers, because sellers are customer too, uh, app uh, appreciate that we should be adding into our tools. So, you know, even while at Amazon, I was looking uh, and looking globally, uh, both at regional players and global players. So AliExpress, for example, uh, was doing a number of really sophisticated things. Uh, AliExpress was saying, hey, give us the more data product attributes you give us um, we that uh, raise conversion measurably raise conversion or improve search will give you a fee discount and this has been some years but it created this testing of all those attributes you mentioned that amazon collects there was less of a black box because aliexpress was saying great if it increases we'll add it we'll add it to the visible page um, and uh, we'll see if it improves things and if it does we'll give you a fee discount uh, and that became a stimulus for me at, at running the Amazon Detail page. At the time, you know, product descriptions on Amazon usually, I think, had a max of five, maybe seven attributes visible in the product description chunk of the Amazon product page. Uh, and AliExpress, for some categories, especially like some of the technical products, um, would have 15, 20 attributes, yeah. right? What size server frame is this down to like, what's the screw pitch on the you know, piece that holds it in. It's like, okay, clearly some customers appreciate that. I don't even know how to get that visible to customers on Amazon as a seller. So, you know, we would learn. So AliExpress, I think, you know, we'll give you all this information, try to reward you, so reward experimenting. Um, I think Amazon really misses out on rewarding exp uh, sellers experimenting, right? I think every seller should be doing managed experiments all the time on Amazon. Uh, even if it's just rotating bullets or trading out two main images that you know work, it's just a physical principle. When the store is clean or refreshed, you know, in a physical store, it's the same thing digitally. Uh, AliExpress would do that. Now, on the flip side, uh, AliExpress also had built their catalog in a way that it was the same product identifier in every part of the world. But translation, they took some shortcuts, right? And so crowdsourcing your translation, then this is a challenge that remains today, whether it's on EMAG in Romania and you're trying to get, you know, Romanian to Hungarian or Hungarian to Bulgarian, um, especially in some of, I'm going to call them edge markets, um, because there's less, uh, uh, there's less translation libraries out there mm -hmm. uh, to be able to efficiently do it. Well, Express went the crowdsourcing route, right? And that's going to run into difficult results. If you translate wrong, um, you're going to get returns. You're going to get complaints, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think AliExpress is interesting. Yes, in the U.S. we can talk about Walmart, but really Shopify, right? So if you follow the spend, you know, in the U.S. and and Target Plus is um, or Target, you know, Target Online is is starting to grow. So if you take those four marketplaces, content optimization is is rather different. 
um, Amazon titles feed into search relevance. So 100 plus on mobile, the title is the only verbiage, the only words that you have for the first two or three th thumb swipes because mm -hmm. product descriptions push so far down in bullets. Um, so Amazon kind of incents you to have 130 to 200-ish character title. Walmart wants like a 50-character title, mm -hmm. right? Target wants a 50-character title. And they actually incense you to have a short title. So, you know, that's a challenge of not only do how do you meet the requirements, um, how do you meet the requirements for um, uh, the marketplace, but also how do you optimize for the marketplace? You know, Helium 10 has this... Amazon listing quality score. Well, it works well on Amazon, but if you're trying to make an omni-channel score, say, how good is my content performing? Uh, you have to take these rules into play. Um, I think, uh, you know, the ones that win are ones where they simplify, well, and then to go to Europe, right, Amazon is nowhere near 50% of e-commerce, and uh, Europe has a little bit different situation. India has Flipkart and kind of large multi-category sellers. Uh, U.S. has these large multi-category sellers, except for you know Shopify stores, a little more niche. But Europe, my observation at the time, and so it's been a little bit, has a little bit less of these omni-channel stores and a little bit more of a category specialist, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's boots or whether it's, you know, whatever in, in UK or, or Germany. Um, and I can only imagine that optimizing for each of those uh, becomes needful. Mm -hmm. you know, how do you think about it? If you're on 15 marketplaces in Germany with your product, how, how would you even have the time as a small business owner to think about, did I put the optimal uh, words for each? I didn't even have to translate, but I didn't even put the optimal words to get search relevance for each of those marketplaces, right? So wrangling that, that item data um, becomes an even different challenge there. So. I'm, I'm curious to see Allegro and Emag in, uh, in Eastern Europe, I think, are both um, doing some good things and uh, you know, doing some heading towards simplifying translation to make it easier to do cross-border selling and uh, making it, helping you focus on which are the key attributes uh, to drive search relevance and conversion mm -hmm. and connecting with ads, right? So... You know, the, the old Amazon used to be about winning the buy box. Now it's about winning the search rank, right? Yes. And so, you know, words become so much more important and they're dynamic because search rank will change. So it's not like going to an Ikea and going, okay, I have to go to aisle 36 because that's where the desk chairs are and they're always aisle 36. Now it's, okay, I search, customers are searching these words. That's the aisle, right? To find search results. Oh wait, they're now searching these words, mm -hmm. and I have to update my text. So it's more dynamic than static, uh, and so markets that marketplaces that help you um, with clear rules, translation, and then give you the data to make those updates are the marketplaces that uh, that win. And sometimes you can learn from one marketplace to the other, right? So if customers are searching these words on Amazon. They're probably also searching those words on Emac. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so I can use data from one marketplace to make a best guess at managing the others. Even though we're talking beyond Amazon, there's still ways to use Amazon as a tool and a data source to help me on Allegro, Emag, Pigu, see discount, you know, wherever else I'm managing. And an interesting fall there that I've seen a lot of sellers fall into with the keywords for these non Amazon and non English speaking marketplaces is that surprisingly a lot of consumers on these channels will actually look for the English keywords. And so you'll have some people will actually be translating their well-performing English keywords into say Bulgarian or Polish, uh, only to find that actually they didn't need to bother. And not only is the translation wrong, but they could have just left it in English because these consumers in these countries in this particular niche, they are looking for the English keywords for whatever reason that only someone in the region would know. Um, but. I'm curious. It's, it's interesting that that language piece, and in, in, so that's sort of this question of bad translations versus lingua franca, um, you know, or even using uh, misspelled words, mm -hmm. right? Uh, even in the U.S., you know, we still have a bit of a melting pot, and you know, I would learn things like out-of-country sellers uh, from China in the middle of the night, you know, or shopping on Amazon and becoming a pretty major traffic source, or uh, 
you know, the amount of Spanish speaking people in the United States. So where English is not a dominant language or India, you know, and uh, there's an underutilization of video and an under, you know, you're seeing this trend on Amazon, which I think is the right thing. Uh, adding infographics, you know, as again, we're getting on mobile traffic and so there's all these images uh, before we get to a word. Um, putting those, you have to find a way to put image, uh, put words and mix in your, uh, mix words into your, your visuals. On that, on that topic, um, words, bringing words in and also thinking about what you were saying before about testing titles, changing bullet points frequently. A lot of sellers are looking at sort of scalable ways of doing that because it's fine to do it's fine to test bullet points a few times a day if you've only got three listings but for for power sellers with hundreds or hundreds of thousands of SKUs, that's not feasible but right now we're, we're recording this in january 2023 um i i say that because what i'm about to say might not be relevant again in six months, the speed this technology is developing. But a lot of sellers are currently looking at tools like ChatGPT for creating this content. But on the other side of that, there's technology emerging that's specifically designed to detect whether or not these tools have been used to generate it. It's mainly being used for like, you know, teachers wanting to check that homework hasn't been created by, by an AI. Um, and I don't envy them in that position, but I'm curious maybe coming back to Amazon specifically because you know the methodology there, but do you imagine sellers being penalized for using tools like this if it is detected? Or do you think that that's something, using your logic from before, that Amazon would perhaps incentivize and encourage? You know, I'm so glad that you give the caveat, uh, <laughs> right? I'm making a guess. I can't read the mind of Amazon I'm not there anymore. Um, I'm not making the policy changes anymore. So uh, this is a, I'm hazarding a guess, you know, based on my pattern recognition, right? But a couple things we know, uh, Amazon is going to favor, uh, Amazon is going to favor a, a good customer experience. They may, you know, be unclear sometimes at what they think a good customer experience is. You may disagree on what they think a good customer experience is but Amazon is gonna favor what they think a good customer experience is. They're also going to protect uh, what they would consider uh, the rights and property of different brands, right? That's what brand registry is about. So, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think you have to get too complex or overthink it. Um, uh, and I'm certainly exploring with ChatGPT uh, and I, I know a number of folks who are because it's an efficiency tool. Mm -hmm. And ChatGPT understands Amazon's listing requirements, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't have built in maybe some of the optimization, right? I think it's an interesting way, uh, it's an interesting time of experimentation. And, um, you know, anytime you're using a tool like this, it's up to you to make sure, even though I, you know, I say ChatGPT understands from my experience Amazon's listing requirements, those do change over time. And it's you, you know on you to make sure that any copy or input you're creating is still yours. So it's your property rights. Um, does ChatGPT accidentally use somebody else's registered trademarks or copy? Right, that's on you. Um, it's your job to make sure they don't use the uh, unauthorized words. Right, but uh, it's a pretty interesting efficiency tool, and I think it opens up some interesting experience. Like, please write bullets with using these words and do it in the tone of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yep. Right. Uh, do it in the tone of Asterix. <laughs> you know, um, I think it creates some interesting opportunity. You know, I also swear people don't read, they scan. So, you know, maybe the tone of, you know, Mickey Mouse or Asterix is, is not a right choice, but um, I think it's going to give some creativity and customers will appreciate creativity. I mean, how many of us have not looked for uh, uh, funny reviews mm -hmm. uh, on Amazon, right? They're, they're actually entertaining, right? I'd love to see some bullet points that were entertaining. Maybe people would read, right? So I, I think um, I would just watch out for the Amazon rules and it's a time of experimentation, it's early. You know, I remember back, it was uh, the first time I encountered this question was like back in 2010, 2011. And it was just a question to different leaders at Amazon. What are your best ideas for using machine learning in your business? That was pretty early in the application of machine learning, right? All of us now are like AI, data science, machine learning. We use it all the time, but uh, we talk about it all the time. 
uh, and everybody's generally familiar with it. But back in 2010, 2011, that was an elite group, um, and you had to be a pretty big math head, uh, not math head, math person, uh, to, uh, to think about machine learning. So I was like, what the heck is machine learning? And I think that's where we're at with ChatGPT, right? It's a different kind of search engine than, than a Google search. It's actually an intelligent assistant. You know, can you imagine ChatGPT mixed in with Alexa? Yeah. Hey, yeah. Instead of telling your kids a bedtime story yourself, you'd be like, <laughs> you know, ChatGPT, right? Uh, and all of us are familiar. It's really about the prompts that you use, right? Uh, to, that get you the answer you want. We're all learning what good prompts are for ChatGPT. We don't know yet. You mean you haven't seen one of the 10 million LinkedIn posts with everyone telling us about the 1% of people that don't that know how ChatGPT works? And every single one yeah, of those nobody, posts is written by Yeah, very, very few know. But what a great thing, right? I mean, I think the speed is really fun. Like ChatGPT has just basically said, we don't know how this is useful for everybody, but it's a cool thing. We're just going to spread a big worldwide Lego table. Yeah. Right? Um, but... Yeah, I don't know about you. you know, ChatGPT understands JSON. It understands CSV files, right? You can ask it questions. And how much faster is that than trying to open the CSV file in Excel and then doing some, or Google Sheets and doing some functions? Like, that's pretty cool, mm -hmm. and right? So um, you can ask ChatGPT for an opinion and then ask what sources did you use for that opinion, right? So as a student, you know, I just did some source research and then I'll go look up those sources. Uh, well, that's, you know, is that better than trying to search via Google? Well, it simplified my prompts, right? It was more efficient. Mm -hmm. That's what I say. It's early days experimentation. We're just learning to see how it works. But is it going to be valid on Amazon? You know, Amazon's pretty consistent. Be good for the customer. You know, make sure it's your own work. And uh, just as another caveat on that, we're talking about ChatGPT 3 here, which is still the current version. Right. I'm, I'm sure ChatGPT 4 is going to come along and... Uh, yes, yeah, six, six months from now, we could be Jet GPT 77 and, and Google's got their own version finally released. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> uh, that's why it's early days. Like this is just the first of, you know, many that are going to come. That's right. Well, let, let's uh, let's bring it home. I, I know I'm very conscious of your time and I really appreciate you taking so much of it to share your story, your insights. I've got a million more questions that have come out of this. So I'm going to have to get you back on again one day, uh, perhaps for a later episode. Um, I can even imagine having you on to come and talk perhaps to some of our customers who have no end of questions. They, they were super excited when they heard that the godfather of Seller Central was coming on. Uh, I'd love to finish off by just asking, um, there's a world of marketplace experts and expertise. I, I'd love to know where you go to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think uh, it's still day one in, in marketplaces and, and selling worldwide, right? There's so, you know, so little, uh, we're still in less than 50% of shopping occurring online in a number of categories, or if not all categories. Uh, there's so many customers in the world that are still getting access to new selection uh, and faster shipping times. So, you know, I think sellers who are pioneering on multiple marketplaces, I love Eastern Europe. Um, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, it's a fun place for me. Um, you know, and then obviously, you know, we've talked about Western Europe region and, and U.S. So one, I just encourage your listeners, like it is worth the hassle and pain and trial uh, to go, you know, bring products to new customers and reap the benefits of that. Right. We're, we're in that. Um, as things evolve, you know, there's a handful of people I follow on LinkedIn. Um, and then, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, um, you know, yeah, number of people I follow on LinkedIn. I think you know Melissa Burdick and and uh, um, is doing some great things at Packview and and just following how she's helping drive some efficiency and scale. James Thompson always has you know a thoughtful and experienced perspective over time. Um, you know I think uh, uh, Aaron uh, Runquist is you know also thoughtful and and kind of keeping perspective over time. Uh, and then I watch the emerging software. Like what software is being advertised and what, but what optimization are they doing, right? Chad Rubin's prophecy. So a lot of stuff I'm thinking about Amazon right now, um, you know, or agency and, and KPOC, um, you know, is, is also helping run multi-brands. I think they're kind of on the edge. Um, you know, in, uh, I, I watch, 
you know, nozzle.ai and Rael in, uh, out of the UK. Um, you know, see what's happening there. I pay attention to you, <laughs> but, but really, uh, you know, so I kind of, I just kind of keep a pulse on, on what's, you know, what, but then talking to sellers, what's their current, what's their current problems. There's nothing that replaces, you know, cause all of those voices are serving sellers. So there's nothing that replaces for me, you know, talking to some of the marketplaces directly and my contacts there. Uh, and just talking to sellers, what are the pain, what's working well and what are the pain points? So I love being on questions from your sellers, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, seeing how they're evolving their businesses, uh, or what they're doing to sell those problems. That's the best place I found to keep, keep a pulse on, um, you know, what's happening. Awesome. That's, uh, that, that's some really good resources. Um, I have to ask what's, what's next first if I'm. You know, I've been playing, uh, you know, last couple of years since Amazon, I, you know, do a number of things, Jesse, uh, you know, so I run an advising group called Vantage International, um, you know, work to help e-commerce businesses with uh, improvements to their, their, their shopping journey. They're, you know, doing CX audits or uh, helping them find more efficiency in, in their technical planning. Uh, or just building out marketplace functions uh, with data science and, and data. So, uh, you know, always, always keeping me out to help build the next thing, uh, whether it's a uh, software company that wants to launch a service, because um, that's how I end up talking to KPOC or others. Um, and uh, so I'm keeping an eye out for those. You know, I really look, think there's an opportunity around omni-channel brand growth software tools that help sellers if, understand the impact of their actions not just did you optimize your inventory, but is this really going to help your P&L? Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to play in that space. Uh, I've been also paying attention to the aggregator space and participated in that. So I helped start Foundry Brands and uh, uh, you know, have advised them uh, over time as a, a founder and an advisor. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious to see how you know, the aggregator space continues to evolve in the next year. Uh, I'm excited to see Thrasio recover and, and pivot. Uh, and you know, I think that'll be great in that market. So, uh, but for me, I'm looking at Vantage clients and looking at, at data businesses that uh, helps to help drive seller growth. Fantastic. More partnering and advising and, and consulting. Brilliant. Okay. Well, let's leave it there, Stefan. Uh, thank you very it. much for your time. Thank you, Jesse. I love what you guys are doing. Uh, hope your listeners get some good out of this, and I hope they. Uh, you know, use your tools as you guys help them tra- uh, traverse marketplaces. So thanks again. Look forward to being on and visiting with you down the road. We can talk chat GPT-5. Any opportunity to get a look under the hood, particularly with someone who was as high up as Stefan was, to gain a better understanding of how Amazon ticks is worthwhile. But I love chatting with Stefan and have no doubt that a future episode is on the cards. I feel like we only scratched the surface here and I'd love to do another deep dive into some of the specifics of Seller Central. If you've got questions you wish I would have asked about Seller Central or Amazon in general, be sure to fire them over to me on LinkedIn. I'll collect these over time and get Stefan back on to answer as many of them as he can. Thanks again for taking the time out of your day to join in for this. I'm Jesse Rag from eChameleon, and you've been listening to Marketplace Jungle.